Hi, I'm Abby, a functional dietitian and gut health expert. Hi, I'm Jillian, a functional dietitian that specializes in women's health and hormones. And this is Your Body Has Your Back podcast. Together, we have over 20 years of experience supporting clients in healing their gut and hormone symptoms and guiding them from overwhelm to ease in their body. We help clients reconnect with their body and transform their lives using targeted nutrition, lifestyle, and supplement therapies. Finding optimal health in our modern chaotic world is more challenging than ever. And now it's our mission to provide you with the tools you need to strengthen your relationship with your body, to resolve your gut and hormone symptoms, and become your greatest health advocate. Join us for honest, inspired and offbeat conversations on health that will leave you feeling empowered to take action so that that you can can trust your body has your back. Welcome to episode seven of the Your Body Has Your Back podcast. Last episode, we talked about circadian rhythms, where we briefly touched on how our sleep-wake cycle is circadian. And we also discussed specific action steps for supporting and optimizing circadian rhythms. In today's episode, we're going to dive much more deeply into the topic of sleep, specifically sleep quality, quantity, disruptors, and targeted strategies for troubleshooting sleep issues, all the things. Sleep and stress, Abby and I were kind of talking about this the other day, sleep and stress are really the two biggest things that impact our gut, our hormones, and really our overall health. And we all know that stress is bad and not getting enough sleep is not good. But Abby and I really feel that the way these topics are discussed and the recommendations specifically that people receive around things like sleep and stress are just really, really outdated and missing the mark. And we are here to change that. So let's dive in and make sleep sexy again. Hey, Jillian here. I just wanted to pop in to remind you to check out my self-paced nutrition course, Eat to Heal Your PCOS. If you're a woman struggling with PCOS, and you're dealing with all the unpleasant hormone symptoms like acne, irregular cycles, head hair loss, weight gain, and more, this course is for you. Eat to Heal Your PCOS was designed to help you discover simple and effective nutrition strategies to balance your hormones and to start resolving your PCOS symptoms naturally without unnecessary restriction or cutting out foods that you enjoy. Building a supportive foundation with your nutrition and knowing how to confidently fuel your body for balanced hormones is the number one place to start for healing your PCOS. So if you haven't checked out the Eat to Heal Your PCOS course, you can find it in our show notes or you can go to JillianGreaves.com to check it out. You can also take our free PCOS blood sugar imbalance quiz, which will help you to determine if this is the right course for you. Abby, do you want to kick things off here and tell our listeners a little bit more about why sleep is such a big deal? Absolutely. So listen, sleep is the most underrated and abused form of medicine that is not prioritized enough in our modern 21st century world. We're just going to come out and say it pretty like maybe a little harsh and blunt from the beginning, but we got to hear this. Sleep is often the first thing to be deprioritized from our routine when life gets demanding because at the end of the day, less sleep only negatively impacts us, the individual. We allow too many daytime demands to encroach upon sleep. When in reality, sleep should be the most prized and protected form of medicine. Sleep needs to be seen as a medicine. 
Sleep is a part of every treatment protocol, no matter what the area for healing is focused around. That is in every client that Jillian and I work with, sleep is absolutely a priority right from the beginning. It's right up there with us talking about blood sugar and circadian rhythm, and you know how passionately we feel about those topics. Don't don't get us started on those again. (laughs) (laughs) What I find so interesting about sleep is that it's actually a very complex and active process in the body. So we may be consciously snoozing away, feeling like we're getting a break from the busyness of life, but our bodies are not in off mode. They're not just passively resting. We are actively switching into another gear that is equally active, but we're just not conscious to it. So we have to recognize that sleep is an active process. It's an enjoyable process from our experience of it, but it's an active process. And when we cut into it, we are reducing the abilities for our body to participate in that active process. And generally speaking, sleep is when the body heals, when the body restores and repairs from the demands of daily life. There are processes that occur during sleep that will not occur at any other time in our day. Therefore, if we are not prioritizing quality and quantity sleep, we are missing out on majorly important protective processes that not only promote more optimal health, but that protect against frank disease processes. So sleep is really needed for immune function. Sleep helps to balance inflammation and immune responses in the body. So we're thinking less risk of catching colds, viruses, and more quickly bouncing back from those when and if we do catch them. Cognitive function, sleep strengthens and directly reduces decline in neurological function. So short-term, that might look like better mood and clear thinking and memory. And long-term, it looks like reduced risk of anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's. Those are big deals. Metabolism and metabolic function. So you want to stronger metabolism and to further your weight loss goals, get optimal sleep. Sleep improves our metabolic health. And we're talking about better blood sugar balance, diabetes prevention, weight management, and helps us to even feel more satisfied for meals, appropriate hunger cues, experiencing more consistent energy, cardiovascular and heart health benefits. This is more balanced cholesterol panels, reduced inflammation, less risk of cardiovascular events like heart attacks and strokes helps us to balance hormonal fluctuation. It supports our nervous system and adrenals that impact everything from energy to digestion to mood and helps in gut healing. Sleep is when the gut heals. His digestion is a less active process happening at night, allowing for the digestive system to have more focused time to repair tissues and and restore faster. So just as a disclaimer, because I know that some of you hearing this are new parents or caretakers or, or in a role in your life right now, a situation that doesn't allow you full control over your own sleep schedule. And we recognize that there's a season for sleep for some people, but we would also encourage you to sleep whenever you can. So naps, productive rest, which is a topic we're going to hit on later in the episode, allow yourself to see sleep opportunities as a strength, not a weakness. And if you find yourself choosing between cleaning or sleep, always choose sleep. So clearly we are so passionate about this topic and the idea of I'll sleep when I'm dead, using those quotations, and I'm sure we've all heard that, that type of mentality sends literal shivers down my spine because it's so backwards. Prioritizing quality sleep is how we show up to more fully live life, not the other way around. Do not get it twisted. So to really hit this point home, Jilly's going to be sharing a little bit more about some of the majorly astounding impacts that not getting enough sleep can have on our body. And before I dive into that, I just want to point out, Abby, how powerful that comment was that you just said in terms of see sleep opportunities as a strength 
and not a weakness. Like that is just so profound, honestly, and just such a powerful statement or really a mindset shift rather, where we live in this world that essentially applauds burnout and a society that almost attaches guilt to things like sleep and rest and and prioritizing sleep and rest. So, you know, I do think a big piece of this too is the mindset shift around, you know, seeing sleep as something that is productive and seeing that as a, a key opportunity to support and enhance your health. So I just, I love how you, how you stated that. Yeah. Not extra time to get more stuff done. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, and I'm guilty of that. Truly. I, you know, it's, it's tough for all of us. And I think I've gotten better over time, but you know, this was a big part of, of my personal health journey in terms of just burning the candle at both ends. And it's an ongoing process to really shift the mindset towards, you know, seeing sleep and rest and restoration as, you know, being really productive and important for health. It's all about doing less, right, at the end of the day. So let's talk a little bit about what actually happens when we don't get enough sleep or we're getting poor quality sleep. When we don't get enough sleep, the body is unable to do all of those really, really important repair and regeneration tasks and functions that Abby was kind of just talking about. And these things are, you know, as she mentioned, really essential for just keeping the body healthy, balanced, functioning optimally. And before I highlight some of the major impacts of poor sleep, which again could mean, you know, not enough sleep in terms of hours or duration, poor quality sleep, I do want to point out that the repercussions of sleep deprivation in humans are seen after just one night of disturbed sleep. One night. So I really just want to highlight that. The impacts of sleep disruption are happening in real time. They're happening immediately with that one night of disturbed sleep or sleep loss. So when we don't get enough sleep, we don't get that good quality sleep, this directly leads to impaired insulin sensitivity and blood sugar issues. Again, we love we love talking about the blood sugar. So if you are new here and you're not sure why this is such a big deal, Tune into episode two of the podcast where we talk all about blood sugar balance and why this is so essential for gut health, hormones, metabolism. There have been countless studies done on sleep and blood sugar specifically, and it is super apparent that even that one night of disturbed sleep in otherwise healthy individuals actually induces insulin resistance and impacts glucose or carbohydrate tolerance. So we have blood sugar issues from that one night of poor sleep. Crazy. This kind of point alone or this fact is just, I think, also a great reminder that food is only one piece of the puzzle. Food is a very important piece of the puzzle. And, you know, we consider food to be super fundamental. You know, we've talked a lot about food as medicine in other episodes here on the podcast, especially for blood sugar. But this just highlights the fact that you could be doing all the things in the world with food. But if you are not getting enough or you are not getting that good quality sleep, this alone can lead to significant blood sugar issues. So we, we definitely want to pay attention to these things and, you know, and not neglect them. Other immediate consequences of sleep deprivation include increased gut permeability or, or intestinal inflammation, inflammation of the gut lining, which can lead to a whole slew of digestive symptoms specifically, and also systemic inflammatory issues. So, you know, that could manifest as mood issues, fatigue, skin issues, so many different things. Abby touched a little bit on the importance of sleep for immune function, and we know that with just that one night of disturbed sleep, and you can imagine what happens when, you know, we're chronically sleep-deprived, that one night of poor sleep actually 
impacts the immune system. Your immune system is actually weaker the next day. So more susceptibility to, you know, getting sick, picking up, you know, the bug, the virus. Sleep deprivation can also cause sugar cravings, carb cravings, and it actually impacts our energy intake or how much we eat specifically, which I just think is so interesting. And this is because sleep deprivation actually alters appetite-regulating hormones, specifically ghrelin and leptin. Adults that are sleep-deprived have been found to have higher circulating levels of the hunger hormone ghrelin. When I hear ghrelin, I think about, like, tummy grumbling of, like, hunger. So, you know, there's more of that hunger hormone circulating in the body and lower levels of the satiety hormone leptin, so that fullness hormone. One large study actually found that people who slept five hours had leptin levels that were 15% lower and ghrelin levels that were 15% higher than people that slept for eight hours. That's a big difference. There was also a large review done back in 2016 that looked at the effects of partial sleep deprivation on energy intake and energy expenditure. And it was found that energy expenditure did not differ with sleep deprivation. So the amount of energy that we're we're burning is not impacted by sleep disruption. But it was found that sleep deprivation was associated with an increased energy intake of 385 calories on average per day. That's a pretty big deal. And it is the least talked about, you know, piece of the puzzle. And like Abby was saying, it is so underutilized and highly modifiable and free, you know, to work on sleep. So, you know, these things are really profound. And I will also say too that Abby and I have a lot of conversations and we're going to dive deep into this in some future podcast episodes around weight and, you know, kind of how weight is talked about and looked at in our culture and calories, you know, diet culture, all the things. So we'll be diving into this more so, but I think you all know by now that we are not providers that are overly emphasizing calories because that's just a, a gross oversimplification of nutrition and your health. But you know, I do think it's important to point these things out, especially when I think there's such a big fixation on calories in our our society. And it's not that they don't matter, but, you know, they're just a, a small piece of the puzzle. And, and to build on that even a little bit further, I just thought this was, you know, also really cool. Another uh, small study found that people who slept one hour and 20 minutes less per day than the control group in this study that was sleeping for eight hours. So the, the group that you know, got one hour and 20 minutes less sleep, consumed on average 549 additional calories each day. And again, energy expenditure is not impacted in these studies. So, you know, big, big impact here in terms of hunger, satiety, and the amount that we are are consuming. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I can, you know, even just think about experiencing that, like, flying a red-eye flight, right? Or, you know, there's a late-night weekend or something where your sleep is really disrupted, and you feel like a bottomless pit the next day, right? Even though you're not, you know, maybe out doing all the things and and expending lots of energy, I can feel that in real time. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're really talking about is like we're using calories, which are, you know, a very like black and white measurement as to like what everyone kind of uniform discussion here to really show that there are like massive shifts in the body. And calories are just the like tip of the iceberg in terms of the hormonal 
adjustments and compensations that are happening when we eat into our sleep, like all the puns intended in there. But we can be our study of one and we can feel the differences. Like I completely, I can't tell whether I'm like hungry or full when I haven't had enough sleep. And it's like, well, I guess I'll just eat again. Like (laughs) my mentality. What carby, delicious, salty or sweet things are out there for me, you know? Totally. So, yeah, I think we can, if we all really actually, like, tune in and think about, you know, different experiences that our bodies have had, our bodies are really intelligent. I'm always, you know, out here throwing the plug, but our bodies have our back. And when we tune in, listen, we could learn a lot of this, but it's just so profound to see some of this actually, you know, documented in research in terms of, again, not just the calories, like Abby said, but just all of the implications of sleep deprivation, you know, the the impact on hormones and the hormonal cascade. It's just super, super profound. And last couple of things I want to mention about you know, the impacts of sleep disruption. There have also been just some interesting small studies that have suggested that uh, sleep deprivation actually impacts areas of the brain that are associated with reward when exposed to food, which is, you know, just another really cool layer of things. And, you know, lastly, sleep deprivation, it leads to cognitive impairment. Another thing that I think most people could relate to if, you know, they had a not so great night of sleep. Big disruptions to cortisol in the HPA axis or the stress response system, ultimately, again, just hormone disruption across the board. Yeah, I feel like when you say that, I like automatically think of like treat yourself and big fan of treating ourselves. But that like feeling of like we're all kind of aiming for like, let's be like consistency and like routine and all of these things. And when we are sleep deprived, that is it's so much more tempting. And we have the deck stacked against us really to like lead us not only in like food choices, but also in choices of our movement and like how we spend our time and all of those things. So it really impacts us in just so many ways. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I love that you you just said treat yourself and, and brought it up um, in that way. But you know, to build on that, the way I like to describe it to clients is like sometimes there are physiological drivers that are really, I guess, driving cravings or you know, driving certain behaviors and impacting our decisions, you know, around things. And to put it in like a really simple example, I want my clients to enjoy a cookie or something sweet in the context of like, oh, this looks awesome. You know, this is going to provide me with a lot of joy and pleasure. You know, I've eaten enough today. My blood sugar is stable. You know, things are are feeling good. And that feels like a, you know, healthy, supportive context to be having something that's enjoyable. And I want to minimize the situations where, you know, we're grabbing for the, you know, the sweets or the this or the that out of reactivity because blood sugar is all over the place because our hunger and fullness hormones are a mess from sleep deprivation. You know, there's just so many things that can impact our behaviors, our cravings, our decisions around, you know, food and lifestyle stuff. And, you know, I think once we can support the body appropriately and level the playing field, we can make more like clear-headed decisions that just like feel really empowered. We can respond and not react. I love it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I give like the very long-winded way of saying it and Abby comes in with like the (laughs) concise. Oh no, we're we're both long-winded. That's our problem. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Let's talk about what does disrupted sleep even mean? And good quality sleep is a combination of a sufficient duration. We need good quality sleep, appropriate timing, and consistency. There's kind of four pieces to this recipe. So disrupted sleep would really be categorizing any deviations from those four qualities. So meaning if we're not sleeping long enough, we're not achieving deep quality sleep, or we're experiencing significant irregularities in the timing or the consistency of sleep, 
These can all contribute to disturbances in sleep that can reduce the total amount of time spent in those restorative phases of sleep. And those can lead to that laundry list of dynamics that Jilly just shared above. So I want to dive into some common patterns of disrupted sleep because, you know, it's not all gloom and doom. There are actually some common patterns of disrupted sleep that we can actually gain some insight from as to what might be leading to some of those disruptions and thus maybe some practices that we can invite in to help remedy those sleep challenges. So let's look at it through that lens of what information we can get from the body based on your sleep patterns. So generally, we're going to talk about three patterns of disrupted sleep. So trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, and trouble waking, feeling rested. And we're just going to kind of talk about these as like bird's eye view. So let's dive into each of these a little more and discuss some factors that can be at play for each. So a very common pattern is trouble falling asleep. So often trouble falling asleep can feel like your mind is racing, your body's restless, or might be described as like wired, but tired, but you're like unable to fall asleep. There's a couple different dynamics that can exacerbate or drive trouble falling asleep. And those can include disrupted circadian rhythms. This is a topic that we went into major detail in episode six. So dive back to that to get a little bit more detail. But generally exposure to light and dark is a key driver of the hormones that govern our sleep and wake cycles. So when these hormones are not getting appropriate and robust signals, that can lead to disruptions in sleep quality. So most notable, a lack of morning sunlight or conversely too much blue light from technology or screens at night can disrupt our circadian rhythm and thus disrupt the organized signals our body needs to fall asleep. And we're going to dive into some of the actions in just a minute in terms of having to remedy some of these dynamics. We also could be experiencing low blood sugar or hypoglycemic periods. So these can often occur in someone that's going too long between meals. Maybe they're under eating or they're resulting maybe from periods of actually too high blood sugar. What goes up must come down. So these all result in a stress response that triggers cortisol release. And cortisol is a stimulating hormone that's purpose is to release stored glucose from the body when blood sugar is low. So we're kind of mobilizing that maybe from the liver or even from protein sources in like the gut lining, hello, leaky gut, in the body during low blood sugar periods. And what this also does is it stimulates wakefulness. So it causes us to be more wakeful, especially in the evening, if these are when these swings have happened or throughout the day. So balanced blood sugar is a huge tool to be aware of when it comes to sleeping and falling asleep, in particular on the topic of under eating calories or maybe even eating too low carbohydrate or or a combination of both because that can lead to a stress response in the body that stimulates that wakefulness and impedes sleep. So we want to be thinking about optimally nourishing the body from really a foundation of caloric intake. We've talked about that at length, and we'll continue to talk about that because it's so important. So waking at night is another pattern that's really common. And let's start with the ideal sleep is sleeping through the night without waking, not even once. So I think it's really often to hear that like, waking once or getting up to urinate is like within the bounds of normal. We really want to be putting it out loud and clear that we want people sleeping through the night. You go to sleep, you fall asleep, you wake up in the morning and it's it's morning. So we're going to lay that out as our goal. And that is the goal that we have for everyone listening to the podcast. So many people wake at night, often maybe to urinate, but we're setting that goal. Certainly, if there's some of you that are waking multiple times at night or taking an extensively long time to fall asleep, like 20, 30 plus minutes or waking multiple times to to get up and urinate, we really want to be not impeding in those times of quality and quantity of sleep. 
So we're not necessarily recommending to be a clock watcher if you're experiencing sleep challenges, but you can garner some really general insight into what might be at play when we pay a little bit of attention to what the timing is for our waking at night, particularly if it's pretty consistent. So waking around midnight or shortly after falling asleep can often suggest undereating. So maybe too few calories throughout the day or even too low carbohydrate intake. Again, that's that stress response that we were talking about and that wakefulness. Maybe waking between two to four in the morning. That can involve maybe some congestion on our liver detox and drainage pathways as those are really active during those times in the evening. And you know, to get a little bit more information from that, we have a whole episode on detox and drainage. And there's some really wonderful lifestyle and nutrition supports that we can use to support those areas. And even waking between 4 to 6 a.m., that's often a time where we see imbalances in blood sugar and that compensatory stress response causing the body to wake too early in the morning. So overall trouble falling asleep, disrupted waking at night, and even waking not rested, all three of these dynamics can involve the adrenals and an overactive stress response. So a topic that we dove into in episode three. So we're going to send you back to all of these to get a little bit more insight. But if you're struggling with falling asleep, definitely check that out. So focusing on that morning light, setting up a calm nighttime routine is a key strategy for anyone having that trouble falling asleep. And then the third pattern, not waking up rested and feeling tired no matter how much you sleep, often suggests focusing again on those adrenals and that overactive stress response so that your body's able to get more restorative sleep, especially for those that are actually sleeping and waking up not rested. So there are a couple of tools too that are used for sleep that actually can negatively impact quality sleep. So those can be like sleep medications, THC, alcohol. They're often tools, and I'm using this in quotes, that I can hear clients using that help to promote sleep. But the challenge is that some of these tools, they can certainly elicit sleep onset, but they can often actually impede the deep restorative processes that we want to be happening when we're sleeping. So we invite you, if you're someone that utilizes some of these sleep aids and tools, to really trial in some of these strategies that we're going to dive into in just a moment and see if we can help to utilize lifestyle and nutrition as a way to promote deeper sleep and actually start to reduce some of the need for some of these Band-Aids. So that would be a little bit if you're someone that's like, oh, I got sleep down pat, I use XYZ. And some of these sleep aids might be things that, that we're using. Can we actually tune in a little bit more to the nutrition and lifestyle? All right, so now talking about nutrition and lifestyle, like what can we do? Because there's a lot that we can do that we often, Jillian and I have talked about this so much in preparation for this episode, that it is often just, we're offered no skills around nutrition in particular, and even very minimal skills around lifestyle. So Jill is going to take it away with what are some of the things that we can do around nutrition that really can actually help in improving our sleep quality and quantity? There are so many things that we can do, you know, with nutrition and a variety of ways that food and eating can impact sleep. And the first thing that I want to cover here is meal frequency or when we are eating. Ultimately, which we we did talk about this quite a bit in the circadian rhythm episode last week, episode six, but ultimately what we want to consider generally for supporting optimal sleep with when we eat is aligning our pattern of eating with our circadian rhythm and eating consistent meals throughout the daytime. This means eating breakfast ideally within one to two hours of waking to break your overnight fast and then eating consistently about every three to four hours throughout the daytime after that. 
When we eat is a really big regulator of circadian rhythms that can impact both sleep onset and sleep quality. Newer research has found that eating more in the late evening hours before bed can actually result in disruptions to healthy sleep patterns throughout the night. So, you know, the the deep quality sleep, the REM sleep, the different, you know, kind of patterns and, and um, you know, things that we're cycling through at different, you know, periods throughout the night, ideally. It also seems like, surprise, surprise, that women might actually be more vulnerable to the negative impacts of nighttime eating on sleep. Again, you know, women's bodies operate differently than men's. Our hormonal makeup and cycle is just very, very different. Women do seem to be more vulnerable to sleep disruption related to nighttime eating and related to when we're eating in general. Late night eating can delay the onset of sleep hormones, so the production of things like melatonin, you know, that helps us fall asleep and stay asleep. And it also forces your body to focus on mobilizing hormones and, you know, muscles needed for digestion. It also keeps our heart rate elevated when we actually want the body to shift gears away from digestion, you know, to get into that deep rest and repair mode while we are sleeping. Basically, just like you know, we talk about in terms of the way that humans operate externally, we're not great multitaskers, right? And neither are our bodies internally, where we are not meant to be sleeping and trying to digest at the same time. We were not hardwired this way. We cannot do both of these things well. So if the body's focused on digestion, it's not going to be able to do what it needs to do in terms of repair processes. What we often see in practice is that not eating enough during the first part of the day is actually what often leads to that late night eating and hunger. So this is where we want to focus on eating enough consistently throughout the day. And to reiterate what we talked about in some previous episodes, the body is prepped and primed and ready to go. It is more insulin sensitive in the morning, in the early part of the day. So we really want to, you know, kind of take advantage of that and provide the body with fuel when we want it to be digesting and we want to have energy to, you know, function optimally throughout the day. So in terms of, you know, how much time we want to leave before, you know, our last meal, our snack in bed, I wouldn't say there's a perfect answer here. And there are a lot of different things documented in research and just kind of clinically in practice. There's a lot of nuance here, like like everything else with nutrition. But ideally, aiming to leave two to three hours to digest before bed after that last meal or snack is going to be ideal because your body can, you know, shift away from that digestion focus to, you know, focusing on sleep. Ultimately, we do always want to respond to hunger. So if you are experiencing hunger an hour before bed or two hours before bed, I don't want to hear you guys saying, but Jillian and Abby said, I can't eat before, so I'm going to go to bed, you know, hungry and and ignore those hunger cues. If you are hungry at night, if your body is giving you biological signals that it needs something to eat, respond to that. I always say biological cues always trump external rules. These are not rules. These are guidelines. These are tools. And there is flexibility there. We're humans. We're not robots. So there are circumstances where eating something closer to bed can be warranted. One of those situations being when your body is telling you that it it needs something. And if we ignore that, we can actually put ourselves in the position of, you know, hitting that low blood sugar point overnight or in the early hours in the morning that Abby described, where we're going to end up, you know, jacking up the adrenaline hormones, the cortisol, and that's going to disrupt sleep in a different way. So other circumstances that 
an evening snack might be warranted could be situations where we are looking to come out of a really disrupted blood sugar state in terms of, you know, someone that has been on a too low carb diet, you know, for way too long. We may need to use an evening snack as a tool to improve the body's ability to keep blood sugar stable overnight. You know, so all sorts of different situations to consider. There's not a straightforward answer here. We like to make things really complicated in in the nutrition world, but you know, generally if we're able to eat consistently and leave a, a you know, 2 to 3 hours to digest before bed, that is going to be optimal in terms of setting yourself up for really, you know, kind of great quality sleep. And I think that brings up a good point. When it comes to nutrition, we don't have to treat our bodies like a textbook. We can have curiosity. So if you're someone that this is really, you know, hitting home for and you have some sleep challenges, trial like two weeks where you aim to have like two to three hours before bed where you're not eating. See how that impacts sleep. And if you're still having, you know, waking at night or waking like too early in the morning, maybe it's, huh, let me try bringing in some of those evening stacks that I heard about because maybe it's a blood sugar thing and trial that for two weeks. So we need to be trialing things for a robust enough period of time, which is like two to three weeks, in my opinion, especially when it comes to to sleep. And I, I think I would love to hear kind of your duration on that too, so that we can really see how things impact. And we can see, you know, even if it was a stressful week, how's the next week? And just have some curiosity because you might find like, wow, that evening snack, I didn't think that was what I needed, but like, holy moly, that made a big difference. And then you've got some more insight. Oh, maybe it's a blood sugar thing, or maybe I'm not eating enough. And it's kind of giving you some more information and you're just really being curious about it. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I do think that that's an appropriate timeline in terms of let's trial something, give it a couple weeks consistently and assess whether or not it's, you know, producing any benefit or if we're experiencing kind of, you know, the the same disruption. And I would also point out too that we wouldn't recommend trialing creating more space between your last meal and bedtime if you're skipping breakfast, right? We need to kind of think about the order of operations here in terms of like, let's set ourselves up for success and make sure that we are having that well-rounded protein-rich breakfast, that we are meeting our needs optimally throughout the day. And then, you know, maybe closing down the kitchen a little bit earlier and assessing how the body responds to that. So we really want to approach this in a very methodical, supportive way and not, you know, kind of put ourselves in the position of disrupting things more so. And we'll, we'll give you some ideas for evening snacks that might be helpful to have on hand if you are someone that wants to experiment with that or you want to have, you know, some some things on hand as a tool. But first, I want to kind of dive in and talk about just general meal composition related to sleep and what we know here. So in terms of meal composition throughout the day, so we want to start off, like I mentioned, with that well-rounded protein-rich breakfast. Protein, carbs, fat, fiber, you know, really optimize that, you know, breaking of the fast in the morning. The first meal of the day, like we've talked about a lot, especially in episode two on blood sugar, the first meal of the day has a ripple effect on blood sugar, the nervous system, our appetite, everything the rest of the day. So consider using breakfast as a way to ground yourself and to set yourself up for success and for ideally, you know, good, good quality sleep in the evening. Sometimes we think about symptoms or maybe things like sleep disruption in terms of what did I just eat? Uh, What did I just eat that caused this? And sometimes there's a correlation there, but oftentimes we have to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. So let's make sure we're having a really well-rounded breakfast to start the day. And we can eliminate that as a factor that could be disturbing sleep, you know, via blood sugar issues and nervous system dysregulation. In the evening, it's really important to make sure that we are also having a well-rounded meal and including a great carbohydrate source. 
There are some studies that have suggested that having a higher carbohydrate-based meal in the evening can basically shorten the sleep onset window in terms of we are able to fall asleep more easily. And This has been found in research in terms of, in comparison to people who have low carbohydrate or low glycemic index meals in the evening. And even if you are, you know, maybe on a low-carb diet and it is warranted for, you know, any reason, research has found that there may be possible benefits to having that, you know, more carbohydrate-rich meal alongside your other components that produce blood sugar stability in terms of of sleep onset. And there is also evidence that, you know, carbohydrate intake in particular can actually reduce cortisol at night. So if you remember, you know, all the the conversations we've had about you know, cortisol, circadian rhythms, and Abby just mentioned a little bit earlier in this episode too, that we do not want to be getting spikes in cortisol or stress hormone at night before bed. That is going to prevent the body from producing hormones that it needs to sleep. Carbs calm cortisol. So we can utilize and harness the benefits of carbohydrates to calm cortisol and the HPA axis. So just another thing to consider in a world that is obsessed with all things low carb. (laughs) And I think a point there too, I think when we say carbs, people are like, they want us to eat bread. It's like, eat bread if you want to eat bread. But it's like, what about like a sweet potato? What about some carrots or beets or parsnips or like a starchy like root vegetable that's got a great source of fiber and some like complex carbohydrates? Like we don't necessarily- Fruit. Yeah, like it's exactly a piece of fruit. Like it's like, let's expand. When we say carbs, people automatically are like pasta, bread. And it's like that, you know, yes, we're talking about that too. But like, if this like evokes fear in anyone listening, it's like invite a parsnip onto your plate. Like parsnips are- delicious. They don't get enough credit in my Come opinion. But parsnips. <laughs> in all honesty, I could not tell you the last time that I have eaten a parsnip. <laughs> wow, I'm shocked. But definitely going to be on my grocery list because now I'm curious and I'm going to think of you every time I eat a parsnip. Big fan. So, you know, Abby, Abby brings up such a great point there. So, you know, overall, we are advocates of bioindividuality when it comes to all things, you know, health and nutrition. We are big advocates of nutrient-dense whole foods, and, you know, carbohydrates are no exception And that. Focusing on those whole foods and minimally processed carbohydrates, not only are there going to be lots of benefits from, you know, kind of a blood sugar uh, nervous system perspective when we're incorporating them, you know, kind of in, in a supportive way, but we get all of the benefits of the vitamins and the minerals and the fiber, um, which are are so key. So definitely don't want to avoid the carbohydrates and we can use them in a smart and supportive way. Ultimately, in terms of meal comp, we just, we want to have a well-rounded dinner a few hours before bed. Again, carbs, protein, fats, veggies, If we are having something close to bed, we're utilizing a bedtime snack. We actually do recommend focusing mostly on carbohydrates at that time with a small amount of protein or fat. The reason for that is because carbohydrates are easier to digest. And by pairing them with a small amount of protein or fat, we are going to slow down the digestion of the carbohydrates a little bit to promote that blood sugar stability overnight. So we're not, you know, rapidly burning through it and ending up riding that blood sugar roller coaster while we're sleeping. So ideally, it's going to be something that is easy to digest, a little bit of carb, a little bit of fat and protein. If you are someone that has been in a chronic caloric deficit or you do eat very low carb, we've mentioned a few times now that this can really negatively impact sleep via disrupting cortisol and blood sugar. And we do often work with women that are are just eating way too low carb or they're not eating enough. And I will actually say that I often am, you know, testing women's hormones and cortisol being, you know, one thing that I'm testing. And I actually see big spikes with cortisol at night or big spikes with cortisol at times of the day that we 
do not want to be seeing that. And there are a variety of reasons this can happen. Like Abby mentioned, you know, disturbances with light and dark exposure. But one of the most common reasons we actually see this happening is related to hypoglycemia that triggers the release of cortisol. So we actually see this not only from a symptom perspective, but we see it on paper when we are testing clients' hormones. If you're coming back from, you know, a rigid diet, under eating, that evening snack could be a really helpful tool. And to dive into specifics with, okay, what what are we talking about here with something that's balanced, easy to digest? A couple things I might recommend, and I'm curious what your thoughts are too, Abby, would be just a piece of fruit with some nut or seed butter. Maybe some bone broth. Bone broth is really, really mineral rich, which is amazing. And it's also a rich source of glycine. Glycine being an amino acid that's found in bone broth that has been found to help with sleep onset and quality. So, you know, maybe you have a mug of bone broth and a small piece of fruit with that since the the bone broth has a little bit of protein, but the protein piece is um, in liquid form. So it's not going to require so much oomph from your uh, digestive system to, you know, kind of break down and, and digest. Another really cool way to incorporate glycine and maybe have an easy-to-digest evening snack could be making some tart cherry gummies at home. I actually got this idea years ago from Lily Nichols, who is a really amazing uh, prenatal dietitian. And basically, you can use collagen gelatin and tart cherry juice to create little gummies. And tart cherry juice is going to help increase melatonin and tryptophan, which help us feel tired and fall asleep. And then the gelatin is going to be the rich source of glycine. So also helping with, you know, sleep. So, you know, and actually ends up kind of being pretty balanced in terms of the juice has a little bit of carb and then, you know, we get a little bit of protein from, you know, the the gelatin. A couple other ideas would be you know, a few dates and some nut or seed butter. Also maybe just like a bowl of berries and you could sprinkle it with a little bit of cinnamon and maybe a little bit of ground flax. So nothing crazy, but just, you know, kind of balanced and easier to digest. I love those ideas. And I feel like to add, I have a lot of clients that like the like sweet kind of, if they're going to have something at night, they're like, oh, more in like that sweet category. So even things like a like golden milk, mm. which tends to be like turmeric, a little bit of honey. So we're getting some of that like carbohydrates and then a little bit of like a nut milk. I like to use a little like coconut milk. So we're getting some of that like kind of fat at night, but not a tremendous amount. You could turn it into like a cocoa and we're going to add some protein. You could add a little bone broth protein or you could add some collagen protein and make either, you know, mix it into that kind of golden milk if you like that like kind of spicy turmeric piece to it or even some like cocoa, which great source of magnesium, which is nice and calming. For some people, be a little stimulating if you're super, super sensitive to caffeine. So just mind that. I do love the product. Four Sigmatic has the reishi hot chocolate and reishi is really calming and can really help people with sleep too. So sometimes I'll suggest that and some like kind of mixing with some hot water, a little coconut milk, kind of same idea, maybe add some protein in there too, as like a collagen protein or a bone broth protein that mixes in super easy. Something that plays a little towards like the dessert, like world, because that's kind of the world that I like live in 24 (laughs) seven. I love those ideas. They sound like so cozy, especially like it's freezing and and gloomy today here in Boston. So I'm like, Ooh, what am I going to make, make tonight for my like cozy, uh, sleep promoting bevy? Yes. So really great ideas there. And in terms of wrapping up kind of meal composition and just kind of food specifics here. So talked a little bit about meal frequency, meal composition, and to round it out, got to touch on just a couple things that disrupt sleep. 
So I've mentioned protein and that we don't want to have, you know, a super heavy protein rich snack or meal right before bed that can impact sleep. Alcohol being a big one that Abby also mentioned, alcohol is definitely a big disruptor of sleep and it will impact sleep quality in a really big way in terms of, you know, your body temp is going to remain elevated, impacts, you know, things like heart rate, impacts the detox organs. So, you know, even if we get enough sleep after alcohol, we often don't get that good quality sleep. A tip that I'll typically recommend to clients is trying to have your last alcoholic beverage two hours before bed and switching over to non-alcoholic beverages to give your body a little time to, you know, start to kind of metabolize that alcohol and you can, you know, rehydrate, incorporate, you know, some minerals and things like that. And then the last thing would be caffeine, particularly late in the day. There are all sorts of different opinions on this in terms of, you know, how, long, you should avoid caffeine before sleep. I think a good, you know, kind of general recommendation or the recommendation that I will often give to clients is, you know, trying to cut it off by around noon or one. If you want to experiment with this and, you know, listen to the information your body gives you about sleep, you can certainly explore that. But generally, I think kind of cutting it off around lunchtime is a a good idea, especially if you're super sensitive to caffeine. Hi, Abby here, and I wanted to check in with you all about your gut health. Are you ready to heal your gut, eliminate digestive symptoms, and experience better energy, clear skin, and improved focus? You might be surprised to discover the one thing holding you back is something that affects every system in the body. But if you're like every client I've worked with, you've not heard about it before. And unless you address this one key body process, no diet, supplement, or lifestyle change will have the lasting impact you want. That one system is your drainage system. And I'll teach you exactly what you need to do to get that system functioning again in my free training so you can finally heal your gut and eliminate those frustrating energy, skin, and brain fog symptoms once and for all. So if you're ready, sign up for the free drainage system training through the link in our show notes or go to abovehealthnutrition.com and it's right at the top of our homepage. So diving into some of the habits and the environment around sleep. So we've kind of touched on how to eat, what to eat to support sleep. Let's talk about the environment. So we're going to come back to circadian rhythm, obviously, and the importance of light and dark exposure. Those are really what govern our sleep schedule and should be the first place that we're really starting to strategize. So emphasizing morning light within an hour of waking. We've talked about this such at length in the most recent episode, circadian rhythm. So we're not going to dive too, too much into that here, but really aiming to get that morning light and then conversely protect protecting and reducing light exposure at night, especially blue light from technology and screens, as I said above. When we reduce light exposure at night, it aids in our body's reduction of cortisol. And as cortisol reduces, we are able to produce melatonin. And that's really the sleep onset hormone and and so many other functions in the body. So when we think about protecting ourselves from light in the evening, there are some very concrete strategies. So blue light blocking glasses, they can be helpful to reduce the more stimulating wavelengths of light, that blue light that gets emitted from all screens. It's not a total solve or a freebie to then be like watching Netflix until like the moment you fall asleep, but it's definitely a helpful tool. So you can enjoy some TV and screens into the evening with less stimulating situation. I like to wear them after like kind of whenever sunset happens. And right now it's like at 5 p.m., but I was going to say seven and I was like, sunset's at five. So I'll I'll start to wear them around the house kind of at that time. Dimming your lights two to three hours before bed 
bed can help to signal to your eyes, your brain, your body that it's evening. So that's really making the appropriate hormonal shifts to start to reduce that stimulating daylight. So turning off overhead lights and turning on lamps that are on table sides, watching the sunset or getting out before sunset as the light is kind of naturally dimming. This can actually help to reduce the sensitivity of your retina to those nighttime lights. And to quote Dr. Huberman, who is where I kind of learned this from, it really buys us a little bit more like Netflix and chill time. So you can wear your blue light blocking glasses and watch some of that TV and be less sensitive to that stimulation. Again, not a free pass, but we'll take it. And sleeping in a dark room. We are talking total dark. So Jilly and I definitely are big fans of like blackout curtains so that you can get like total darkness in your room. But if you don't have those and you're not looking to install those, you can use a sleep mask to really reduce any light exposure on your eyes. And that's going to protect your melatonin surge and promote the most restful sleep. And I know people are like, but I want to wake up with the sun. We really want that kind of converse darkness at night and light in the morning. So then you can just open up the blackout curtains or take your mask off and it's beautiful and sunny or rainy and cold, whatever it is where you live. (laughs) There is another concept of productive rest. This is a concept where we often introduce to our clients and they might initially come back with like, what? I don't have time for that. You want me to nap in the middle of the day? You crazy? Yet in the same conversation, we're often hearing from clients how exhausted they are or how poor quality sleep they're getting. And when we hear these two things, it's like something's got to give. So productive rest is a new term that we're going to introduce. We don't think we made it up, but we're going to really scream it from the rooftops here. It's a powerful tool to help to retrain the nervous system and break the cycle of pushing ourselves into that fight or flight stress response all day long. So a productive rest period is really where We want to be aiming for a period of anywhere from like three minutes to even like 30 or 40 minutes if you have it. And it can depend upon the day where we're aiming to be in a calm, focused state where we're really just focusing on deep, slow breathing, maybe listening to a guided meditation. We could use a guided yoga nidra as another type of guided meditation. Or you could just lay down on the floor and stare at the ceiling, feeling your own breath. It doesn't have to be fancy, but your nervous system and body will massively thank you. And the more consistently we practice this, especially for those of you that are struggling with fatigue and exhaustion, the practice and the consistency is the difference. And it really will make the difference between us reacting to our environment and getting more triggered into that stress and exhaustion state and helping us to really transition into a responding to our environment and really being able to transition the nervous system into that rest state, that parasympathetic state. Because we are not made to be these energizer bunnies where all day long we're constantly expending and depleting energy. That's all day, every day. And so we'll massively benefit from these short periods of restoration where we're helping to reprogram and we're helping to really normalize and celebrate these periods of daily recharge, whatever you want to call it. We're going to call it productive rest. We could call it a nap. You don't necessarily have to fall asleep. It's not part of it. I often do. I like to call them napitations, but that one hasn't caught on. So I'm going to call it productive (laughs) rest now. But really, the I mean, we can really think about it too, is like the list of CEOs that practice kind of daily productive rest in different forms from meditation to yoga nidra, the list is impressive. And so, you know, I think often to to cite some really effectively productive people like this list of CEOs who have realized it's not about burning ourselves out the most. It's about working smarter, not harder, and viewing rest as productive. And I will point out too that 
it can feel really challenging to take those pauses or to make that shift to see rest as being productive and beneficial when you have a never-ending to-do list. You're so busy. You're running a household, all the things where it feels like, I just got to keep checking things off my list. And it's tough. It's tough to scale back. But scaling back and i don't even you know mean in a drastic way just carving out even those those pockets for productive rest or a few minutes for the the nervous system you know or an outlet for recovery those are the things that are really going to give you the ability to scale up and to show up in the way that you likely want at home in relationships at work and you know it could be an appetition you know for for me, just getting outside and, you know, getting a little bit of fresh air, you know, doing a little bit of breathing, going on a short walk. It is hard to peel ourselves away, but when you do it, and you do it consistently and you come back and you notice the difference in, you know, how you feel, how you react, how you communicate, you know, the focus, the cognition, you know, it's like the the proof is in the pudding. And I think what Abby was mentioning earlier about experimenting with, you know, certain things with food for a couple weeks, maybe even try experimenting with, you know, carving out and protecting time for, you know, a short break in the day and just do it consistently. Show up for yourself, you know, do a little experiment. And then at the end of two weeks, assess how that feels, how your body feels, um, you know, how your productivity feels. And again, I think the results will probably speak for itself, but we do understand that it's hard. It's hard to make that time when you're really busy. That productive rest can be so incredibly helpful and really help to transition us into sleeping in the evening. I know it might sound ironic that it's, you know, a pause in your day is going to help with your sleep, but it's about our nervous system and allowing our nervous system to be flexible so that we are able to move from this productivity-driven state, our more stressed nervous system, our sympathetic nervous system, into our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and digest state. So to, to pivot a little back towards the environment of setting up sleep, really aiming for, you know, let's talk about temperature. What temperature should it be when we sleep? We want a cool environment. So the temperature of the brain, the nervous system, the body is a key driver of sleep. So that's our internal temperature in our body. So when we sleep, our body temperature should be slightly lower. It's about two to three degrees to promote the most optimal sleep. So if we can set the bedroom temperature to a lower temp to support that cooling of the body, it can help to promote the most optimal sleep. And the best recommended room temp is anywhere from like 65 to 67 degrees generally Fahrenheit for the most optimal sleep. So nice cool temperature. I personally like 67. What are you at, Julie? Oh, 67 is also very much my temp, but I'm just smiling over here thinking about the last trip Abby and I were on together where we've been roomies on a variety of trips in the past. And it's quite quite the scene at, at night where we're like, you know, putting the thermostat down as low as it goes. We have like the eye masks, the mouth tape, all the like, you know, all the things, which is very funny. We're really good roommates because we have the same eccentric routines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So speaking of kind of environments, your your bedroom environment actually makes a huge impact on sleep quality. And we want serene bedroom environments. So we're thinking like Pinterest page here, but really declutter is in reality we're talking about. And I love the, the Marie Kondo view on stuff. If it doesn't bring you joy, don't hold on to it. And our bedrooms really should be the most reflective place of that. We want to create a place of tranquility and peace and having clutter can impact our sleep quality. There's there's actually some research on sleep quality in people who tend to like hoard material goods and how that kind of hoarding can lead to like reduced quality of sleep. So, you know, really practice letting go of things, particularly like really getting clutter out of the bedroom. 
the practice of like what we do in the bedroom too, like keeping it to be this, this protected space. There's that saying of like the only two things that should be happening in the bedroom are sleep and sex. <laughs> and we're big supporters of that. It's like, you know, reading in the bed. Okay. Like we'll, we'll create we'll, some we'll space that for that. Slide. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> totally. But that feeling of like, if you're having challenges sleeping, like not making the bedroom a place that like a tremendous amount of activities outside of those two activities so that when you go into that room, it has this very tranquil quality to it because it is a place for connection and restoration, I guess we could call it. And that kind of brings up TV in the bedroom. This is like, I hope anyone's like off, like get out of here, you crazy people, no TV in the bedroom. But, you know, really having that be like a treat, falling asleep to the television is like falling asleep to a giant blue light. And that's where, you know, having a time that it's like, okay, if we watch TV in the bedroom, that's, you know, fine, but let's, let's create a time that the TV gets turned off at and really try to make it like an hour, 30 minutes, just try to be flexible here where we we are turning off the TV before we are going to sleep so that we're really having a period of time that your eyes are not inundated with that stimulating blue light. Hopefully we're wearing our blue light blocking glasses and we went for like a sunset walk before. So we bought ourselves some Netflix time, but really that's an incredibly important practice. Hard, firm boundaries with the TV in the bedroom. (laughs) You heard it here. And then lastly, a calming routine. So another hugely impactful practice is implementing a calming bedtime routine for the hours leading up to bed. So these practices are are in particular so important for calming the nervous system and transitioning from that kind of stimulating day activity to that restorative nighttime activity. And I often ask my clients who have young kids, how important is their child's bedtime routine? And I'm often met with like, oh my God, it's so important for this, that, and the other reason. And, you know, what I always kind of respond is like, well, you know, we're just big children, like, and we need bedtime routines too. So it's like, you just went on and on about like the bath time and the book reading. And if you don't do it, like all hell breaks loose. We are like kind of the same. And I feel like talking about bedtime routines with some clients feels like a punishment. And I'm kind of like, oh, bedtime routine. And they're like, oh, you're going to take away all my fun time at night. I'm like, I'm not trying to take away anything, but it's interesting that that's your perspective, that what feels like childhood stuff may be there, (laughs) but we need to connect with what we practice as a calming bedtime routine. And the goal is to make it feel like luxurious and have different options that you get to choose based on what you're feeling in that moment. And I promise you, it's not a punishment. And it's not a punishment if you allow yourself some like creativity and some options to say like, what's going to feel really nice if I do tonight? And to like have a couple different things that you enjoy doing that are calming in the evening that maybe aren't television so that you can do that for that 30 minutes to hour after we shut the TV off and we're just in the bedroom starting to really transition to sleep. I will say I love an evening routine, a wind down routine. It's like, it's comforting. And, you know, ideally you you can find things that feel really good and that you actually look forward to. Andrew, my husband is so funny about, you know, my different nighttime routine activities and things where he's like, all right, you know, it's an hour before bed, go start your nighttime routine, like get all the, get all, start getting all the things done that you need to do to actually be able to like get into bed to start falling asleep. But I enjoy it. And it it really, you know, helps me relax. And, you know, I feel like the moral of the story at the end of the day here is we're all kind of big, big babies (laughs) at the end of the day. Right. And, you know, our bodies, you know, our, our brains, our physical body love routines and, you know, we can make these things super enjoyable. 
I think the more that we like really like take that in of like, let me treat myself like a, you know, like a, like a big baby and like really like love up on myself and give myself all the TLC I would to like an actual baby. Cause it's like, oh, let me like love up on this little baby and like hold it and squeeze it and love it. And like all those amazing things. It's like, let's do that for ourselves. And for, you know, for you and for me, like our, our bedtime routines that we love, like they didn't happen overnight. Like these have been things that we've been cultivating. And so that's really what we're, you know, we're, we're inviting you all to cultivate your own. And that could look like a brain dump journal, especially for those of you that are going to bed with like a racing mind. And you're like, it just doesn't stop. It's like, get your thoughts out on a page because that actually is a form of therapy of being able to write them down, take them out of your brain and allowing maybe to slow down just even a little bit of that like racing mind. Another great tool is listening to a guided meditation. So this is a personal favorite of mine. I fall asleep to a guided meditation every single night paired with deep breathing, just to share with you a little personal sleep routine. But soothing sounds, guided visualizations, they really allow your mind to wander and kind of let go of busy thoughts from the day. So all of these practices from the kind of wandering of your mind to focusing on on your breath all help to calm that nervous system. Other sounds too, like biurnal beats, again, yoga nidra, which is a, a guided meditation technique, even just calming sounds of white noise or ocean or rainforest. All of those can be really helpful to give our brain something to focus on other than the to-do lists and the busyness from the day. The mental chatter. I think that's what they refer to it as in uh, like the Headspace app, which oh, yes, I feel like most, most people are aware of Headspace or the uh, the Calm app for guided meditations. But the mental chatter is a big thing for me personally. And the brain dump, the guided meditation to really calm the nervous system and to calm the mental chatter makes a huge difference. Huge difference. It really does. I used Headspace for a long time and loved it. I've been using To Be Magnetic for anybody that's a follower of To Be Magnetic, a big fan over here. I've transitioned to their kind of guided meditations or medigrations, which is a, a medical intuitive that I work with. I also use hers just as, you know, citing some of those resources. And the Calm app is a great one too that I know, especially for like all those like sounds, really, really helpful. Then deep breathing. So we kind of called it out as part of like meditation, but diaphragmatic breathing, which is really just focusing on kind of expanding the the belly really to give room for the diaphragm to pull down actually directly connects to our nervous system. We can't be running from a tiger and like breathing into the upper third of our lungs when we're showing our brain via our physical body that we are deeply breathing. I went real deep in the Huberman podcast recently and he was saying that we can't control the mind with the mind. And what we need to be doing when we get to a point of realizing that I can't, I can't boss my mind around with my own mind, we have to turn to the body. And that's what practices of like deep breathing and light exposure and, and all of these things that we're talking about of really using the body as the tool to educate our brain to say, we're not running from the tiger anymore. We're in fact actually lying in bed trying to restore from the fact that we ran from a tiger all day long through our dead sprint of emails and meetings and client calls and, you know, what have you. I'm like citing our days today. I know. <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, wincing over here. Yeah, yeah, How did you describe my day? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> like we're going to go we're going to go calm our mind with our bodies after this. And then calming yoga practices, there's a tremendous amount of research around the linking of of yoga, which is the linking of breath and movement. I know Jilly, you said that you love like yoga with Adrian. Yeah, I I love yoga with Adrian. If you're not familiar, she has a whole website, but a lot of free YouTube videos, which is great. And I think what I love is that she has a lot of short flows. So 10, 12, 15 minutes, and ones that are directly geared towards promoting sleep and relaxation and calming the nervous system, which is just, you know, so cool. And and I think oftentimes, at least I can speak for myself personally, especially in the evening after a long day, I want to be guided. I want to just sort of have someone else guide me through that process and not have to like get creative or come up with something I'm, you know, on my own. Oh, I feel that like so hard. I'm like, just, just tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Herbal teas, which I know Jillian's going to touch on some herbs and and things in, in her highlight in just a minute, but those can certainly help to kind of build a routine around that feels like luxurious and enjoyable, or even some of the recipes that we were sharing above, like the like reishi hot chocolate. If you're like more of a like sweet person like me, we can even see those like influencing our our nervous system and our neurotransmitters to breathe that to promote that calm and sleepiness. Epsom salt baths, a warm bath with one to two cups of Epsom salt is an amazing way to actually absorb magnesium through the skin, a really wonderful calming we call it the relaxation mineral. So relaxing kind of everything from our physical muscles in our body, but even to our our mind to really help with sleep onset. And also the warmness of the bath can help to increase the temperature drop in the body to promote more restful sleep. So Epsom salt baths are wonderful, but we don't actually need the Epsom salt, even just a good old bath. If you enjoy that, of course, even for like five, 10, 20 minutes, you don't have to be there in the bath for like hours, maybe adding some essential oils like lavender to even additionally calm the nervous system through the evoking all the senses in there. So really, there's a tremendous amount of tools. And this list would we could probably continue this list for a whole nother episode length. So really tuning into what connects to you. And Jilly's going to share a couple more tips and tools, including some of our favorites. We have lots of favorites, if you couldn't tell. And something I just wanted to, to add on to the warm bath tip is even just a hot shower. You know, if you want to do something quick in terms of having that larger temperature drop in terms of, you know, kind of warming up the body and then you're, you know, getting into bed and getting into a cooler environment, ideally, in terms of helping to to promote sleep onset and, and restfulness, all sorts of different tools. And as I kind of go into this next little section of, of tips and, and tools for promoting sleep, just remember, no one does all of these things all of the time. And I Ideally, you're going to pick one or two things to experiment. And, you know, we'd encourage you to do those things consistently, like we've been talking about. Give your body time to adapt and respond to those things to see if you notice a benefit. But really, we're hoping that there is something here for everyone that feels genuine in terms of something they could incorporate into that evening routine or for promoting sleep, you know, as a whole. The first tip here that I want to dive into is definitely a favorite of uh, both Abby and I, which is mouth tape or mouth taping. If you have not heard of mouth tape before, basically this is a a practice which involves using some tape. You can use just, you know, uh, regular surgical tape. You could also use fancier mouth tape. There's different companies. Somnifix is one that, you know, some clients enjoy where basically you are gently taping your mouth 
shut to encourage nose breathing. And when I say mouth shut, you can still breathe through your mouth. So if you're using a Somnifix mouth tape strip that goes across your lips entirely, it is permeable and it has a slit. So you can still get air, but it's gently encouraging that nose breathing while you're asleep. If you're using surgical tape, you will just vertically place a small piece of tape down the center of your lips, again, just to gently encourage nasal breathing while you're asleep, which might sound a little bit weird if you've never heard of that before, but you're probably realizing at this point that Abby and I like to get weird with all all things, uh, you know, nutrition and lifestyle, and mouth tape is definitely one worth exploring. So just to list out some of the benefits of uh, encouraging that nose breathing while you're asleep. So what this can do is actually activate the vagus nerve. It's going to promote better, deeper sleep and less waking throughout the night. So less of that disrupted sleep because it is encouraging the nose breathing. It also decreases snoring if you are a snorer or if your partner is a snorer and you know, you may want them to explore some mouth tape. Other things that mouth tape can support are things like a a healthy oral microbiome, which is super important. So we do have an oral microbiome very interconnected with our gut microbiome. So by supporting our oral microbiome, we're actually, you know, supporting gut health and therefore our systemic health. So this helps to filter out, you know, germs, bacteria. I mentioned the vagus nerve piece of things in terms of that nose breathing. So stimulates the vagus nerve, helps to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So getting into that rest rest and digest mode where the body can actually actively recover, you know, and focus on, you know, all of those repair functions that we want to promote while we're sleeping. Some evidence has actually found that nose breathing in general, not just why, why we sleep, but in general increases nitric oxide, which improves blood oxygen levels, which is pretty cool. And then lastly, specific to sleep, if we are breathing through our nose versus our mouth and, you know, kind of gently taping our mouths shut, this can help with that uh, dry mouth that some of us might wake up with in the morning. And it can also help to minimize teeth grinding. So wide, widespread benefits with mouth tape. And both Abby and I are avid mouth tapers. I'm going to call Andrew, my husband out here. He is an avid mouth taper now, and he was so weirded out by it at first, but it was pretty life-changing for him and and quality of sleep and the restfulness and the energy he noticed with mouth taping and still notices is huge. For me personally, I used to wake up a lot throughout the night and thought that that was really kind of the norm. And I would fall fall back asleep pretty quickly, but a lot of small micro disruptions throughout the night, despite doing kind of a lot of different things. And I wasn't a snorer and didn't feel that I was maybe outwardly a mouth breather when I was sleeping. But when I started mouth taping, that was the first time I had actually experienced you know, a full night's sleep without waking. And I said this to Abby when we were kind of planning out this episode that, you know, it's the first time you kind of wake up from having that deep sleep with minimal waking throughout the night. You're kind of a little alarmed, like, oh my gosh, am I am I dead? Like I wasn't up, you know, all, all these little, uh, you know, with all these little disturbances throughout the night. And it just makes a huge difference. I don't know uh, if you have anything to share on that as well, Abby. That was pretty much my exact experience of it too, like massively reducing waking at night to the point that I won't sleep without mouth tape. It makes such a difference in the quality of sleep. And I see that with clients in terms of decreasing like waking in the evening. My dad was hugely against mouth taping. He like was like, are you trying to suffocate me? Like thinking it was like a conspiracy of like mine and my stepmom who was 
equally a pushing mouth tape on him. She was maybe even more forceful about it because he's a big snore and has a tremendous amount of like nasal congestion. And so he was really nervous that like, if I'm trying to breathe through my nose, like I can barely breathe through my nose on a day-to-day basis. And what was fascinating is when he finally caved, because my stepmom was very persistent about it, which I'm proud of her for, he noticed that it massively reduced the congestion in his sinuses all day long. So not only it improved the quality of his sleep and massively skyrocketed his energy, because I think he's actually now getting like oxygen and nitric oxide and all of those things, but it actually reduced the congestion in his sinuses, which is so fascinating. And I didn't necessarily expect that. I was a little curious. I'm also laughing to myself because in the past, like I think it was like in the past like week or two, like Gwyneth Paltrow from Goop has like posted about mouth shaping. And I've had like two or three people send it to me, quote unquote, all of them. You talked about this before it was cool. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yep, that hits, that hits before oh something's cool. I'm like talking about it. And they're like, so you're talking about it when it's uncool. <laughs> That's amazing. But now yeah. it's cool. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm like, does that make me cool now? <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I love that. It, you know, it does, it does sound funny, but try it. You will likely not be disappointed. And, you know, we've experienced it personally, but, you know, all of our our clients really notice a variety of benefits. And one thing that I didn't mention that I do see big improvements with as one piece of the puzzle with clients is with anxiety, you know, which we know you know, kind of mouth versus versus nasal breathing in general is uh, a big thing there, but particularly when we're sleeping, which is is super cool. Love that. A couple other, you know, kind of tips and tools here. So there are a variety of herbs and supplements and, and, you know, different things that you can utilize to help promote sleep. There's a lot of things out there. There's a lot of things that actually do have, you know, good data. And we decided to just choose a few of, you know, the ones that, you know, we like using or we utilize with clients. So this isn't an exhaustive list, but these are some, you know, kind of tried and true things that you could explore to get started. So from, you know, a supplement perspective, phosphatidylserine is a favorite. Phosphatidylserine is a phospholipid that helps to lower cortisol. So remember when we promote uh, the lowering of cortisol in the evening, we encourage the production of, you know, melatonin and it helps with that sleep onset. So you can supplement with phosphatidylserine on its own. And there's also lots of, you know, different combo products out there. Cortisol manager is one, you know, that's great, you know, that we like and utilize with clients, but that's definitely a great one. L-theanine is another uh, really great supplement that you can use as a standalone product. And you can also use it, you know, in, or find it in a variety of blends. L-theanine is an amino acid that can help to reduce sleep disturbances, particularly because of the impact on the nervous system. And in terms of recommended doses, typically 100 to 400 milligrams is recommended with L-theanine. Always consult with your healthcare provider first before, you know, kind of making any decisions there. But I typically recommend starting with 100 and, you know, 100 milligrams, and that can be, you know, really therapeutic and and helpful. And the cool thing about L-theanine is that because it is, you know, supporting the nervous system, you know, it's something you could use in the morning and it can have benefits in terms of helping with kind of calming the nervous system and allowing the body to kind of get out of that fight or flight kind of state more so where we actually feel more energized. But in the evening, it's kind of helping the nervous system to adapt in a different way, which is cool. I was actually going to say that particularly, I mean, L-theanine is naturally found in green tea, which is one of the the reasons why like green tea or matcha, being someone who's very sensitive to caffeine, like if I drink coffee, it will give me the shakes. I love coffee, but I have kind of a tumultuous relationship with it because that caffeine, when it's not kind of balanced, it like really sends my nervous system for like a little bit of a, of a roller coaster. Whereas green tea or matcha, 
And I think really from the addition of L-theanine, because if I take L-theanine and drink coffee, I'll have that same effect of having kind of a focused calm. And that's actually things that, you know, if you find that you're, you know, not to, but a little bit of a biohack, I guess we could call it, that kind of help kind of reduce anxiety, particularly, and maybe if you're getting anxiety from coffee, we kind of like think about the caffeine and the coffee piece, but like, hey, you know, we're all works in progress here. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's a good point. And, you know, Abby and I are definitely big on like tools and different things that you can utilize to support stability in the body, the nervous system often being a focus of that. So you can still, you know, enjoy things and, you know, whether it be coffee or or green tea, you know, with caffeine, but the idea is that you can incorporate these things that you enjoy in a way that also, you know, feels really good for the body. And even though many of us love coffee, myself included, if we're, you know, kind of getting the sweats and the jitters and all the things, it's kind of, it doesn't love us back. It can be like Abby said, a little tumultuous. But L-theanine can be super great morning or evening, but in terms of talking about sleep, that is a really great one. So just to highlight a couple supplements there that you may or may not have heard of before in terms of teas. So Abby mentioned, you know, incorporating teas as a part of a supportive nighttime routine. And there are specific, you know, blends of teas and herbs that actually produce a benefit with calming the nervous system and promoting that, you know, sleep onset and deep restful sleep. Um, Just to highlight a couple specific herbs, Nervine herbs in particular that we like, valerian, which is an amazing one, lemon balm, magnolia, and chamomile. There's a variety of others out there, but those are ones that we really love. And Nervine herbs, for anyone that is not familiar, these are essentially herbs that support and calm the nervous system. They are nervines and they can be really impactful. And I find that they are even more impactful when we utilize them consistently. So like building them into that evening routine is a great idea. I love just as kind of like an accessible option that you might see in the grocery store, a brand is uh, Traditional Medicinals. They have a, a nighty night tea that is super fabulous, has a lot of these nervine herbs, great blend, and, you know, just an easy thing that you could incorporate in the evening. Love that. And then just a couple other things. So magnesium, which Abby touched on. So a super important mineral for a million and one reasons, but most people are going to benefit from some magnesium support, particularly in the evening in relation to sleep, neurotransmitters, the nervous system. We typically recommend anywhere from 200 to 400 uh, milligrams supplemental magnesium glycinate about 30 to 60 minutes before bed. Again, most people are deficient in magnesium and would benefit from some repletion. Always check with your provider first. Make sure that you're not taking any medications that it could be contraindicated and that you're also taking like the right form and and product and all that. But uh, magnesium is fabulous. And then other ways to get magnesium, Abby touched on the Epsom salts and then also just topical magnesium. So that's another thing that you could explore in terms of, you know, in a spray or a lotion. Uh, Then a couple other things, CBD, which I think at some point we should probably do an entire episode on, but CBD can definitely be helpful and it's not going to have some of the implications on cortisol and the HPA access in the long term that, you know, weed gummies and, you know, smoking weed and things like that can have. So CBD can be nice. I really like the the company Ned, which is great. And they actually have a, a sleep specific formula. Joy Organics is another one, you know, that I've utilized with clients that I really like. Do you have any others, Abby? Yeah, I've used Charlotte's Web. 
a good amount of times in that one. But those are, I love those other two companies too. Awesome. Yeah. And I've actually never, never used used that one. I have to check it out. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, for a tip or tool for sleep, castor oil packs. These are probably going to continue to come up in essentially every episode that we share with you guys. I'm not going to go into uh, super depth here in terms of castor oil and, and all of the benefits because we did cover this in depth in episode Four, which was, you know, our detox and drainage specific episode. So check that out if you want to learn more about the benefits of castor oil packs. But that's something that you can utilize and wear nightly while you are sleeping. And it's going to support some of those organs and systems that we've been talking about that can impact sleep negatively if they're not, you know, supported optimally. So the liver, you know, the nervous system, the gut. So castor oil packs can feel really good and be very effective. Yeah, we even think about, you know, anyone waking up at like two to four time that we kind of mentioned above castor oil packs would be, I mean, they can benefit so many of us with, you know, without, with sleep and with, without sleep challenges. But I'd say like specifically, if you're waking up at that two to four time, it's like throw a castor oil pack on every night for a week and let's see what happens. Let's give it a whirl. Report back. (laughs) Let us know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, all right. We just talked all about sleep. And, you know, trying to make like sleep sexy here. So we've got a challenge for you all. And we're going to keep it pretty simple, but we are really passionate about this challenge. And we really want to invite everyone listening to sign yourselves up for it. So it's a 30-day sleep experiment, we're going to call it. And big like drum roll, get into bed at 9.30 p.m. and aim to be asleep by 10 p.m report back in 30 days. Let's talk about the detail here, but it doesn't have to be crazy. I mean, it might feel crazy. Like if you're someone who's like, I can't even go to bed before like 1 a.m., then it's like, all right, maybe you're not going to bed at 9.30. Maybe it's like you're trying to get in bed by 11.30. So it's like you could you know, move this a little bit to make it more realistic for where you are. But we really do challenge you to let's give it a try for 30 days, aiming as close to that 9.30 in bed, 10 p.m. bedtime, because it can literally be revolutionary to your to your life and to the experience you're having in your body. It really can be. And it is a challenge, so it may not be easy. Uh, to Abby's point, if you're really far off from that now, move things up incrementally, but challenge yourself and you know, give it 30 days, report back, and let us know how you feel. Yep. We're going to be waiting. Your body has your back on Instagram. We'll be waiting to hear from you 30 days from now, or even, you know, tune in, let us know like 15 days in, how's it going? What are some challenges? Like we're excited for this. We want to participate in this. I mean, I'm in Heck yeah. bed by 930 most nights. So I know I'm a, I'm a grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Coastal grandma's over here. <laughs> awesome. Well, all right, all. I mean, it's 7 p.m. I'm like, night, night everybody. everybody. Good night. Time for bed. <laughs> yeah. Sleep tight. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Your Body Has Your Back podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, please take a minute to leave us a five-star review and make sure to share the podcast with a friend or family member that you think might benefit from listening. Make sure to follow the Your Body Has Your Back Instagram and to share your favorite episodes. And definitely tag us as you start to live out the Your Body Has Your Back lifestyle. We can't wait to see it. If you're looking for more support on your gut and hormone healing journey, connect with Abby and I over on Instagram. You can follow Abby at Above Health and you can follow me, Jillian, at Jillian Greaves RD. Thank you and see you in the next episode.